Hi, welcome to the Mental Wellness Journey. Discover the underlying causes of your emotional and physical symptoms and finally heal. I'm so excited today to have Dr. Gersh with us. Um, you're in for a treat. Let me read her bio um, to give you a taste of what we're about to learn about. Uh, Felice L. Gersh, MD, is double board certified in OBGYN and integrative medicine. She received her undergraduate degree from Princeton University and her medical degree from University of Southern California School of Medicine. She did, that was followed by a four-year internship and residency in OBGYN at Kaiser Hospital in Los Angeles. More recently, she completed a two-year fellowship program in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona School of Medicine. She specializes in all aspects of female health. In, she specializes in all aspects of female health with a particular focus on managing female hormonal dysfunctions. In addition to her many national and international speaking engagements, she works full-time as the medical director of the Integrative Medical Group of Irvine. She served many years as the assistant clinical professor of OBGYN at the Keck USC School of Medicine and currently serves as a consultative faculty member with the Fellowship in Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona School of Medicine. Dr. Dr. Gersh um, has been awarded membership in the Medical Honor Society of Alpha Omega Alpha, named the Outstanding Volunteer Faculty for the OBGYN Department at USC Keck School of Medicine, and identified as a physician of excellence for Orange County 16 years in a row. She recently has completed her first book, PCOS SOS, A Gynecologist Lifeline to Naturally Restore Your Rhythms, Hormones, and Happiness, which is available for purchase on Amazon. And she will tell you about her even more recent book. So welcome. This does well, this thank is you like, for inviting. <laughs> yeah, this is just a small taste. Um, we were talking a bit before and um your specialty is women and hormones. And because this is about mental health, um, we also started to talk a little bit about the microbiome and the endocannabinoid system. So, because that's one of your specialties and I've heard you lecture on that before. So well, anywhere in between I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I look at hormones and see how they intertwine with all the systems of the body and help to explain so that people understand the role that hormones play and why they're so critical for every aspect of health. And of course, mental health is paramount. But what kind of a life quality can someone have if they're basically not having mental health? So one of the new discoveries of the, this century, really. It's, I think it's monumental. There have been several, like just changing the way we look at humans. One is looking at the circadian rhythm, which links to everything, the microbiome, the endocannabinoid system, which I can explain. And of course, hormones are also circadian. That is dealing with the 24-hour rotation of the earth and how every living creature on earth has adapted to that rotation to optimize survival. 
And then the other amazing discovery has been the microbiome, that we are actually superorganisms, that we are collections of not only our own cells, but also the cells of what I call our cousins. Our cousins are the microbes and the bacteria, the viruses, the fungi, even the parasites that live on us and in us in total harmony when things are right. And they're not just like freeloaders, they're actually making proteins and metabolites and hormones, neurotransmitters. It's like amazing what they make to support our health, but not knowing it, we have done a lot to harm them. And then the other amazing discovery is the endocannabinoid system, which is an ancient system going back in creatures 600 million years ago, but we only just learned about it in the last like 20 something years. And that system has linked us to that ancient plant of cannabis and, and how that works. And then I put all of this together because a lot of people look at this system and that system and this and that and they don't see how it all blends together and I look at it all together and then I see the monumental role that hormones play to keep it all working together in this beautiful synergy that we call health. Yes and and you know, coming from the traditional model, we typically don't look at the rhythms and the variations in hormones. Clearly, being a woman, um, a menstrual cycle, and um, listening to people about their mental health in in perspective to their monthly cycle, but you're also adding in the circadian or daily rhythm as well, and then you're putting the endocannabinoid system and the microbiome. So when if somebody comes to you, how do you begin, what do you do to begin to put all these pieces together? Because a lot of symptoms are, you know, start kind of vague with anxiety, feeling off or brain fog. And we both know it has well, all these symptoms. Well, now that I understand the beautiful rhythms, and of course, when a woman is healthy and she's in the reproductive age group, she also has other beautiful rhythms like the lunar rhythm, which we have also taken great pains to destroy with things like birth control pills. So what I do is I look, that's why I need to spend time with my patients. I look at the total woman. So I need to know a lot, a lot more than you could ever gain in a five, six minute visit. So I need to know how they sleep in terms of like, are they comfortable? Do they sleep through the night? Are they getting up and urinating a lot? If a woman gets up and urinates all the time, she almost for sure has a circadian rhythm dysfunction and probably has sleep apnea, which goes along with that. And that is also another sign of actually neuroinflammation in most cases. So I want to look at the quality of her sleep, the time of day she sleeps, because unfortunately, about a quarter, even more than that, of our society is working at night these days. And the shift workers, the night workers, they suffer tremendously. They have much higher rates of metabolic syndrome, mental illness, depression, anxiety, and cancers, you know, weight gain, obesity, diabetes, just our bodies are not designed for that. It's built into our genes to be diurnal, which means we're day creatures when we're active. We're not nocturnal. But our society demands that a very significant percentage of people work at night. And I, so I want to see what is happening. Some people work during the day, but they stay up late at night. So we call that social jet lag. They 
put it on themselves. And they just stay up really late at night. And then on the weekends, they sleep in. They think they're catching up on sleep. It doesn't work that way. It's not like you can, I mean, there's a little bit of that, but that's not really the way the body was designed. So we need to actually kind of use it or lose it when it comes to sleep to really get the optimal benefits. So I want to see the, the quality of sleep. And then, of course, the diet is so critical. Mm-hmm. I I talk a lot about nutrition because a lot of people don't realize that food has to have nutrition. I actually had to go to dictionary.com to look up the definition of food because everywhere I went, I would see people consuming things that I didn't think actually qualified to be called food. And in fact, they don't. To be labeled food, it has to have nutritional benefit. So I want to know if people are eating (laughs) non-food, which happens in great um, prevalence, unfortunately, in our society. So diet it is about macronutrients, fats and carbs and proteins, but it's about much more than that because we are not feeding ourselves. I'm an OBGYN by trade. So I knew long ago that when you're pregnant, you're eating for two. Well, now it turns out we're eating for trillions, right? Even when you're not pregnant because we are eating to nurture our microbes, our microbiome. And microbiomes, the microbes in our gut, they feed off of fiber. And in ancient societies, people ate humongous amounts of fiber. And now people are eating hardly any. And so we're starving our microbes and people don't understand the implications of that are huge for mental health. They're huge for everything because it all, as a body, we sink or swim together. So I investigate their diet and also not just what they eat, the quality of the food. Is it organic? Is it full of pesticides? Is it processed? Are they getting enough polyphenols from those magical ingredients of vegetables and fruit and all the antioxidants? And also what time they're eating. Getting back to circadian rhythm, we need to feed our body when it's most designed to receive food. It It turns out that when we eat in the morning, the first half of the day, our insulin is much more functional. We are insulin sensitive. So the glucose that is in the food that we eat, in fact, everything that we eat in the food is consumed in a much better way. The sugar gets into the muscles, into the liver better, into the brain better. Everything works better. And we are less likely to go down the path of diabetes. So I love to have a Big breakfast, that's when we're most designed to get food. But if you can't do a big breakfast, at least do a big lunch and not a big dinner. And stop eating preferably at 7 p.m. And this is dramatic for improving mental health because you'll stop that inflammation and that high glucose level, which actually is pro-inflammatory and so terrible for us. And when we have all that inflammation, we then develop more leaky gut. You know, our barriers break down and the wrong bacteria grow in our gut from all that sugar at the wrong time. The microbes are also circadian. So we're actually feeding them at the wrong time. So we're nurturing the wrong ones at the wrong time. They're going to make the wrong metabolic byproducts at the wrong time. The whole thing is going to be tremendously disturbed. So we have to understand our genetic programming. And then, of course, I want to know about their physical fitness. Are they sitting all day? Are they moving? Do they see the light of day? Are they working in a closet, right? Like so many people, because sunlight actually going into our eyes, it increases the production of of serotonin, from which comes melatonin. So when people get sunlight, it does multiple things. It helps to set our master clock in our brain so it knows that it's morning or midday. So our bodies work on sync, you know, on the 
beat, keeping all the organs working in a beautiful um, synergy. And it actually causes increased production of serotonin and then melatonin. It's amazing. And a lot of us never get out. So we need to get sunlight and even seeing nature, beautiful plants and greenery. It really changes our stress hormones. So, and eating in the morning also drops our cortisol, our stress hormones, and helps us to get a beautiful natural rhythm for our serotonin and our dopamine and all of those receptors. So I have to I know everything about my patients. And of course, the relationships, do they have purpose in life? Do they have love in their life? Do they have relationships? And I have to go back and look at early childhood traumas, not because I'm doing psychoanalysis. That's not what I do. But right. I want to know how they came to be where they are. For example, a very high percentage of women who had some form of abuse, it can be physical, mental, or sexual in childhood, they develop obesity as adults because they develop so much stress, so much cortisol, high insulin, insulin resistance, leaky gut, and lots of inflammatory endotoxins coming into their system that it just fed their, their system in such a way that they became so inflamed that they became obese. And so I need to understand them to do that. So you can see it's complex, but and then I have to go and then I have to try to heal them together as a team. Yes. And you say as a team, tell me what you mean by that and how receptive are your patients to sleep changes, dietary changes, um, getting out in nature, exercising. So, oh, it, it's very variable. So I took many courses in motivational interviewing. Okay, many. And I came to the conclusion that they don't work. Now, I, maybe I'm wrong. This is just how I have seen it. I, I don't know what that magic is that gets people to love themselves enough to do the hard work to actually help themselves to, to regain optimal health. So I actually ask my patients, I say, I know you're not a zero. There's a scale of zero to 10. Okay. Zero means I will listen to nothing. I will change nothing. I said, I know you're not a zero. You wouldn't even be here with me. So I know you're at least a one. A one means I want to hear everything you have to say. And I'll think about it, but I am not going to do anything at this time. But as I say, even if you're a one, you're listening, you're here. And ones can grow into twos and threes and all the way up. A 10 is I want to listen to everything you say and I'm going to do everything you recommend. I don't care what I have to change in life. I don't care if I have to even change jobs. If I have, whatever it takes, my health, my personal wellness is my optimal priority. I am going to do what it takes. I almost never see a 10. It's very hard to be a 10. But fortunately, I don't see that many ones. So a lot of people, when I say, okay, so where do you put yourself on this scale? They will say, often, I'm a seven. And I'll be so, I'm so excited. You're a seven. That means you're going to do most things. Mm -hmm. So let's pick the most important things that you're willing to do now. And then we'll meet again in a month and we'll see what you've done. So I usually say, if you're open to it, why don't we work on two things to begin with? How about we work on your diet, which includes timed eating, time-restricted eating, meaning the time of day you eat, and having periods of fasting during the day, like stop snacking. That's what it means. Like eat only at mealtimes, stop snacking. That tremendously helps. And I want to feed the brain. Okay, most people are malnourished of every size. 
skinny people, medium people, obese people, they're all malnourished because the food they're eating is just not nutrient dense anymore. So the first thing I want to do is feed the brain. The next thing I want to do is rest the brain. It turns out that there's tremendous blood flow to the brain during the night, but you have to sleep to get it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I know how the endocannabinoid system, the endocannabinoid system is what makes our own endogenous cannabinoids, which are like the human version of cannabis. And most people know cannabis can be help people to sleep. We're not talking about, you know, like overdosing or anything like that, but it can be calming. It can be immune modulating. That's why people are using this to control, help with pain and reduce cancer and brain fog and all kinds of things. But this is, that's a plant. We have this system in ourselves. We make our own, like they're, they're lipid mediators. They're made out of fatty acids. And these fatty acids are circadian. So we need to live according to our master clock for our own endogenous endocannabinoids to actually work properly. And in fact, we now know that people who are metabolically unhealthy have a dysfunctional, a dysregulated endocannabinoid system. But it will never be right. If you eat at the wrong times and if you don't get sleep, we cannot, we have to nurture our endocannabinoid system. So I want people to eat the right foods at the right time and get enough sleep. And I'm happy to start with that. And then I encourage just something very little. Take a 15-minute walk in nature if possible after each meal. That's all I ask. For the first month, let's just do that. Let's just, I mean, and that is hard. But when people do it, by one month out, they already are tremendously improved. Just in one month of eating real food. Simple and basic, but it isn't. I mean, I know it's so hard for people to change that, but eat real food and take a walk after you eat. And then go to bed so that you can get at least seven with seven to eight hours of sleep. And then I have to go through sleep hygiene, like stop watching television, all that blue light and the excitement of whatever's on the screen and the computer as well. We have to help people to sleep. I use sleep. I use a sleep mask. It tremendously helps. Even a little bit of light filtering in through the eyelids changes how the melatonin is produced. Melatonin is a, a mega, a mega, mega, mega antioxidant neurotransmitter slash hormone, depending on how you think it's being used. And a ton of it is made in the gut. People have tremendous problems with GERD, acid reflux, and nobody tells them the number one reason for that is insufficient sleep. Because you don't make melatonin if you're not sleeping. Melatonin helps control the GI tract. We have microbes in the gut that swarm like insects when melatonin is produced, and then they produce particular short-chain fatty acids that actually go to the vagus nerve and it calms it down. So you have more parasympathetic, you're calmer, and the, the, it makes short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, which go to the brain and it calms the brain. But none of this will happen if you're not sleeping and sleeping in a dark room. So these things are so foundational. I mean, honestly, sometimes I think, why would anyone come to see me? Isn't this stuff like obvious? But what's obvious to me now or to you now, it's not obvious to the average person. And instead they go to their doctors. I have patients come in on seven pharmaceuticals and they're young. I am not kidding, like 40 year old women. And they're on 
they're on something like they're on a proton pump um, inhibitor, like, you know, a meprazole. Oh my gosh, they're all on a meprazole and they're on a sleeping pill and they're all put on metformin because they're all pre-diabetic. And, and, then, I mean, and then they're mostly on an SSRI and then they're on an antidepressant and not just, I mean, an anti-anxiety pill. Um, it's just never ending. It's really amazing. And then they get recurrent urinary tract infections because their hormones are all out of whack and they're not thinking, well, they have a vaginal microbiome, which is another whole lecture on that's abnormal. So they don't grow the right bacteria. The bladder is not protected by the healthy microbiome of the vagina. So they keep getting bladder infections and they go on more and more antibiotics, which can kill out the good guys in the gut. And it seems like a never ending process here and we have to halt it halt it right now get hormones back in balance get the right diet the nutrients the sleep um then so the start working on fitness the foundational things are you know um seem basic but they're not we they're not and if, those, but if, sleeping eating exercising and the right time of day right to get the rhythms of your hormones and, and then we have so many young women because they're not having healthy childhoods because they're high stress in childhood. Many of them were born with C-sections. They were not breastfed. They're eating junk food, you know, this processed food and lots of high sugar foods, high fructose corn syrup. So when those young girls go through puberty and they start getting their periods, they're all magnesium deficient. I can tell you they're antioxidant deficient. So their periods are terrible because they're all inflamed, you know, a menstrual cramp, that's inflammation. That's inflammation in the pelvis. And instead of the, they go to the gynecologist or their family doctor, and instead of the doctor saying, you are unhealthy, but we're going to fix this. We can do this and we can get you healthy so you can have nice, normal menstrual cycles that are really foundational to a healthy female young developing body instead they say oh you have cramps you have heavy periods we're just going to give you birth control pills so 14 year old girls are put on birth control pills rampantly now and they don't recognize they're like i said they're nutrient deficient foundationally magnesium which is involved in like seven now it keeps adding now it's over 700 reactions in the body are controlled <laughs> with magnesium and so they're deficient in foundational minerals nutrients antioxidants and instead of saying you've got to change your diet and you have to work on stress. You've got to get off the computer and social media and all that stuff that you're doing. And you've got to get out and play outside and get outside and have real human relationships and get to bed on time and eat real food, all that stuff. Instead, they get them on birth control pills. That has been shown to not only increase depression, but increase suicide risk in young girls. And we now know that it's foundational to building a healthy female body. For example, we know that bone, which most people don't understand that bone is involved in mental health. They don't get bone. Bone is an endocrine organ. It makes a hormone called osteocalcin, which is critical for glucose regulation and mental and cognitive wellness and proper function of the brain. Well, girls who go on birth control pills do not develop healthy bones to the optimum, not at all, because you need to have cycling regular hormones, estrogen, testosterone, which is actually cycles a little bit, has a little cycle, and of course, progesterone. Progesterone during the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle is huge in bone building. Well, women, um, girls, every age on birth control pills, they have no progesterone. That's a chemical. That's not progesterone. They have no real estrogen. So they don't build healthy 
bones or healthy muscles. And then that's going to affect their mental health for life, for mm -hmm. life, because you get this little window of time about 10 years to really optimally develop your bone and that never comes back. So then I have to work with women who, you know, we always do the best we can, but that's why I say you have to, being healthy starts before birth, but I can't mm -hmm. go back after people are born, but we have to start where they are, obviously. But pediatricians and doctors taking care of teenage girls need to know that there are ways, they're not the greatest, we need to go back to the drawing board and find better contraceptives, but we need to stop poisoning women's hormonal systems. And when you poison the hormone system, you're already going to change the gut microbiome. In fact, there's data out of Harvard University showing that birth control pills change for the negative, the gut microbiome, which we now know is key to everything in life. You know, the gut brain access is huge, but it's not just the gut brain. Now it's the gut bone brain. It's the gut immune brain. It's everything. It's all gut everything. You know, we have the gut heart brain access, right? So everything links the gut. You know, it's like coming out from there, like a, you know, spokes from a wheel or something. And everything starts with a healthy gut microbiome, which you cannot have if you're on oral contraceptives. It just, you can't, or what I call similars, implantables and certain, you know, IUDs and such. So we need to be aware that to have proper endocannabinoid system function also requires hormones. There's a beautiful bi-directional relay between the production of endocannabinoids and hormones. So you, but you need to have two players doing the right thing. You can't just, have, so if one drops off, the other one is going to fall off. So then you won't have proper endocannabinoid production. I mean, it's just a disaster. Once you realize the link between all these systems, <laughs> then you just realize you, these are not optional. Like hormones are not optional. Circadian rhythm, you know, living with it properly is not optional. Nothing is optional. That's what makes it hard. And there's no pill to the ill. That's why big pharma is not going to be part of the solution. It cannot be part of the solution. It can be part of a crisis to help deal with a crisis, but it cannot be part of the ultimate solution. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. And I think also when you say hormones, uh, most people think estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, but they forget about cortisol, insulin, mm -hmm. melatonin. Um, I'm forgetting things already. Yes, thyroid. Um, right, yes. <laughs> but, so when you talk about balancing the hormones, it's all that. It's not just... That's right. Cycle. Well, it's fascinating. I'm so glad you mentioned that. For example, when you have the beautiful rhythm of a real menstrual cycle, estrogen upregulates thyroid receptors, right? So there's a beautiful interplay. If you don't have enough estrogen, estrogen helps maintain the master clock in the brain. When that goes off and starts drifting, the rhythm of cortisol becomes disrupted. And then instead of having the proper rhythm where you have high cortisol in the morning and low at night, many people end up with low in the morning and then high at night. So they're dragging in the morning. They wake up, they need 10 cups of coffee. You know, they cannot get going. They're so tired. They don't have any cortisol in the morning. And then at night is when they feel best. But of course, that's totally wrong. There's no such thing as a healthy night owl. I'm sorry for all of you who think you are. You are not. Night owls because an owl is 
is a nocturnal creature. We are diurnal creatures. So that just means you have circadian rhythm dysfunction, okay? Mm -hmm. And your cortisol rhythm is off. And that puts you at increased risk for dementia, depression, anxiety, you know, and sleep deprivation because you don't fall asleep properly. And then that leads to higher rates of metabolic syndrome, hypertension, um, diabetes, heart disease, and um, cancer. I mean, that is not, that's not good. There's nothing good about being a so-called night owl. It's all, I mean, so amazingly foundational. Let's go back to the endocannabinoid system because we hear so much and people ask me and it's not my area forte about uh, medicinal marijuana, about CBD oil. Um, how does that mm -hmm. relate to um, endocannabinoids and then the hormone well, and the um, gut microbiome? So it's really fascinating that there are plants that have components that can interrelate with our own internal systems in such a complex way. So if you take just like marijuana, okay, so marijuana has in it um, CBD um, and it has a whole array, they call them the cannabinoids, okay, so it's not just one compound, but there's a lot of focus on CBD and THC, but there's actually a whole array. And if you look at hemp oil, hemp oil has almost no THC. And that's the component that can make people have a high, you know, that's the, that's the thing that makes people feel high. That's THC. And hemp oil has almost none of that, but it has an array of maybe a hundred different other cannabinoids, these different compounds, not just CBD. And it turns out that they can interrelate not just with um, one or two receptors, but with multiple different receptors in the body. And because they work, th these receptors are all over the body, there's the potential, theoretically, and somewhat being actually realized, but it's still a lot of potential, that we can use this knowledge of these receptors being activated to modulate pain mm -hmm. and mood and sleep and our immune systems and so, and metabolic issues, you know, as well, the gut microbiome. There's actually some decent, decent published papers on using uh, hemp oil or parts of marijuana, some of the cannabis, to actually prevent um, the development in people who have a risk of um, intestinal cancers like colon cancer, that it can be used to treat inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And there's actually good papers written on that. So um, it can also potentially help with other autoimmune diseases. The one that's been most tested is multiple sclerosis. So, and, and in terms of cancer pain, it can help with that and also arthritis pain. So there's actually some very interesting data. I use it also in my patients that have pelvic pain. Women who have pelvic pain have so many mood disorders. I, I mean, they go together. By the way, pain and depression are so interlinked. Um, it, you can't have almost one without the other. When you have depression, it actually makes you more um, hyperesthesia like. So in other words, you have a lower threshold to feeling pain. So a certain stimulus that wouldn't hurt someone will hurt you if you have depression. So it changes you. It changes the way your neurological system is working. And if someone has chronic pain, they're almost guaranteed that they're going to develop depression. I mean, just even thinking about that is so depression, depressing to think <laughs> of chronic pain. So that there is some real hope that using particularly 
hemp-based products as opposed to marijuana. Now, what about marijuana? Some of the risk in marijuana. Well, the high component that of THC that's now been inbred, you know, and cultivated in marijuana can actually have a lot of harmful effects. So, for example, when a woman is in the second half of her menstrual cycle, we call the luteal phase after ovulation, uh -huh. the endocannabinoid system is incredibly downregulated. So you have in the first half of the menstrual cycle, the endocannabinoid system is upregulated and then it spikes when the estrogen spikes for ovulation. But then high estrogen actually downregulates the endocannabinoid system and the endocannabinoid system then downregulates estrogen. So it like works back and forth and progesterone really downregulates the endocannabinoid system. So when you have high progesterone, you're going to really downregulate. It, it works to block the, um, the production, the enzyme that causes the production of the endocannabinoids, and it also upregulates the enzyme that degrades it. So we have a real depression. Now, that is on purpose because in order for the fertilized egg, the embryo, to implant into the uterine wall, you need to have very low endocannabinoids at that time. And it stays low all through pregnancy, and then it jumps up right in it when labor starts. But if you smoke marijuana or take any THC in any format, whether it's oral or um, potentially even topical, any format that gets into your body, then what can happen is it activates the same receptors as our own endogenous um, endocannabinoids, particularly one called anandamide. And what this can do is trigger miscarriages, preterm labor, and early deliveries. And so this is really terrible. Plus, there's some data coming out. It's all you know observational because nobody's doing studies on women, of course. So it's observational that women who've used marijuana with the THC, of course, during pregnancy, that their children have more ADHD, separation anxiety, mood problems, and cognitive problems. Like, nobody wants that. So I caution against the use of marijuana altogether. And in men, it's been shown that what men who regularly smoke or use marijuana have reduced testosterone levels and reduced sperm. And women who want to get pregnant, if they've been using a lot of marijuana, they have a lower quality egg. Their egg quality is way reduced. They have very reduced fertility. And if they do IVF, they have much lower success rates. So we do not want to use marijuana. I know it's legal just about everywhere. People think it's harmless, but it is not harmless. It isn't. And, and if you use it in a very young brain, a young brain means you're younger than 26. It can actually induce psychosis, especially when it's taken orally. It can change the brain that it may never recover properly. It may never get back because the brain is still developing until you're about 26. So it can set you up for mood disorders for life. It can affect the receptors of very powerful neurotransmitters because it can interact in all kinds of ways. Remember, we're just learning about all the different receptors that these can act on. It's not just one. It's really throughout the body. It's, these are very complex plants and working in our very, very complex bodies. In fact, they're talking about the endocannabinoid system in a different way now. Instead of it just being a couple of endocannabinoids, they're talking about the endocannabidome where it's actually looking at, it's looking at maybe a hundred different, different lipid signaling molecules. So it's way more complex than we thought just like five years ago. So we, we are like playing with fire, especially in young brains. So pregnant women, women who want to get pregnant ever, 
men who ever want to have a child or ever have actual normal testosterone levels, they should really steer clear. And if they use it at all, use it very infrequently. And um, we just have to really learn what we're doing before we, um, you know, I mean, I have no problem with legality. Why should people be in jail? That's crazy. Right, 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 right. People need to be educated that legality doesn't mean safety. Right. I mean, that's really important to understand that because we can be changing lives in very negative ways. And, um, and from what I just read, in fact, just this morning, is that the use of marijuana in young people is steadily growing. And I don't think they even know. I don't think their parents know the things that we just talked about. Yeah, I'm sure they don't. I, I know they don't. Um, what about cognitive functioning, especially around menopause and later for women? Um, and then bioidentical hormones. And oh, sure. Together with brain fog. Um, well. well, estrogen has receptors throughout the body. So estrogen is the master hormone of what I call metabolic homeostasis, metabolic regulation of women. And it's what links reproduction to metabolic function. And of course, I always say, they're not two separate systems. It's one body completely interlinked. A woman would not make, it would not make sense for a woman to get pregnant if she was not metabolically healthy. Now, of course, in our society now, we help all kinds of unhealthy women to get pregnant. But my goal is to help women to be healthy before they become pregnant. We now know that children's genes are epigenetically modified in very harmful ways when the mom is unhealthy through her pregnancy. We're, we're creating unhealthy children is really the answer. So what we, we don't want to, you know, have anyone unhealthy going into pregnancy. But understanding that estrogen links metabolic health, reproductive health, it will not be now surprising to say that menopause, which is the end of ovarian estrogen and progesterone production, is linked to problems across every organ system in the female. Because when you have lower levels of estrogen, every organ is going to suffer. Now, most organs in the body make estrogen. That's called a paracrine production. And in men, they make a lot more locally, like in the gut, in the brain, in the lungs, and, and so forth. But women after menopause, their, other, their organs, peripheral organs, they don't make up the difference from what's lost from the ovary. So basically, after menopause, women live the rest of their lives in a state of estrogen insufficiency or deficiency. They have some estrogen, but it's not sufficient for optimal functioning of anything of any organ. That's why if you think about all the diseases of aging that women face, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, um, depression, colon cancer, breast cancer, dementia, mood disorders, all of those are really linked to deficiencies of estrogen. And um, my goal with giving women hormones in menopause is not to unfortunately give them back the, the robust health of what they could have when they're 25 with functioning ovaries, assuming they're not on birth control pills, right. right? But I can't do that. Ovaries are very unique. They put out hormones in pulses. They put out rhythmic hormones, different levels, not just during the course of the day, but during the course of the lunar cycle. And we're working on doing research to see if we can actually 
get better at replacing hormones to mimic a menstrual cycle. But we have to get research and we, that's not like standard of care. So if the typical woman in menopause is going to get a static dosing of estrogen where she gets the same estrogen every day, which a woman never would have in a normal healthy 25 year old, and then she'll get progesterone, it's either given every day or for two weeks out of the month. I emphasize take it for two weeks, not every day, because that may help prevent breast cancer because that's more physiologic where you have pulse progesterone, not continuous progesterone. So that is a better. Anything that we do that's more like nature is better than trying to recreate. We tried that with food. It did not work. Let's not try to do that with our hormone, our hormone regimens. So what we're trying, what I'm trying to do is acknowledge the incredible role that estrogen plays in every organ because they're receptors in, you name it, it's, it's, mm-hmm. there's a role for estrogen and try to sort of buffer, you know, sort of soften the landing, you know, because women hit menopause and some of them literally go into a nosedive. It's so terrible. And um, they have terrible hot flashes. They can't sleep. And now we have correlated hot flashes with a higher risk of, of everything, dementia, mood disorders, and cardiovascular events. So hot flashes are more than uncomfortable. They're really incredibly harmful, and they're predictive of a worse outcome to the rest of that woman's life. And then other women kind of gradually kind of go down. Like, they actually do okay. They don't see menopause as a giant hit, and they have definitely a more gradual decline. So my goal is to help women have the slowest dip, you know, try to stay more level for as long as possible. And estrogen throughout the body will help to maintain vascular health, heart health, brain health, gut health, bladder health, vaginal health, pulmonary health, you you know, the immune cell, every immune cell in the entire body has an estrogen receptor, every immune cell. The brain has its own complicated immune system with the microglia when you, and the astrocytes, the astroglia. When you lose your estrogen from your ovaries, the brain makes estrogen, but not enough for women. And the immune cells, they don't have the same control. So you have these really weapons, I call them weapons of mass destruction, because these are modified macrophages. These are cells that come equipped with the capability of producing incredibly toxic enzymes that can like dissolve, like just dissolve things because they're designed to dissolve bacteria, you know, and or fungus. They're designed to protect us by killing the enemy. But what happens when you don't have enough estrogen is that they don't perform properly and they don't protect the brain properly and they don't clean up damage properly and they can secrete their enzymes inappropriately. And the estrogen helps maintain the sanctity of the gut, of the blood brain barrier. That's to try to keep toxins out of the brain and not just toxins, but, you know, living, you know, invaders. So we now know that when they do autopsies of brains of people with Alzheimer's, they find growing mold and different types of herpes viruses. So estrogen helps to maintain that barrier. And if you think about Alzheimer's takes about 30 years to develop and a woman goes through menopause around age 50 and then she gets demented beginnings, like in her late 70s into the 80s and so on. Oh my gosh, maybe there's a correlation here, you know? Men have one, you know, women have almost three times the amount of dementia and you know, Alzheimer's as do men. Maybe there's a correlation with menopause and loss of estrogen. Well, of 
course there is. But the blood-brain barrier, if it becomes impaired, it's like leaky, not just like leaky blood vessel. So you have leaky gut, you get leaky everything. So you get leaky into the brain. And then the, the bacteria, the viruses, the fungus, the mold that are, you know, that end up circulating because they can come through the gut. They can come through barriers. Now we know this. The blood is not sterile. I'm telling you, the blood is not sterile. Stuff is going through the blood and it can get in the brain and grow. In fact, we now know that most heart attacks actually may be due to unstable plaque created from bacteria seeding from the mouth. So it's a whole new way of looking at people. We're not sterile. We have you know, invaders circulating, and we have these amazing protective mechanisms, but they're all controlled by estrogen. If you get endocrine disruptors, okay, that's where we live with the world. So if you get chemicals that block the normal function of estrogen, then all of this can happen at a much accelerated rate and at a much, much younger age. So we have women now going into menopause have what I call the double whammy. They're living with endocrine disruptors, and if estrogen isn't occupying the space on the receptor, what do you think will? It's the endocrine disruptor. So you not only don't get the right message, you actually literally get the wrong message delivered to that cell. And, and tell us what the endocrine disruptors are. Well, they're, they're everywhere. One of the ones that's the most researched are bisphenol A, also known as BPA. It's in all hard plastic, all hard plastic. It's also in um, cash register receipts, can liners, dental sealants, at least it has been, and then phthalates. Phthalates are soft plastics. They're um, like in plastic tubing and things like that. They're also in scents. When, it's, when you see a container like of cream or shampoo and on it, it says fragrance, Fragrance is uh, the buzzword for phthalates, okay? So <laughs> phthalates are a very powerful endocrine disruptor, which actually now have been shown to have a huge impact on male fertility and male sperm counts in particular. So they're really, really, really harmful. And then um, we have um, heavy metals. For example, people don't realize that cadmium, lead, mercury also are not only directly neurotoxic, but they're also endocrine disruptors. So an endocrine disruptor is any chemical that works in any way to alter the normal production, distribution, receptor function, degradation, or elimination. So it could be any or all or any piece of all of those different, life, we'll say in the life cycle of a hormone, anywhere it can be disruptive. And then we have these other new things like flame retardants, stick retardants, um, you know, all of these things like that are now um, trying to make us live better through chemistry, but really, no, it's, you know, these are like in California, where I am, they had the strictest laws about flame retardants, and then they retracted them after they basically poisoned. They did studies, and everyone in California had higher rates of flame retardants than anywhere else in the country. It was so that you didn't burn up in your bed. Well, I mean, I would rather take a chance on my mattress, you know, and not sleeping on a flame retardant, you know, right. bed, you know, that is going to, I have to, oh, it's off-gassing all these fumes, and it's the dust particles, and it, gets in, it can get into us through our skin, through breathing, through eating, through any kind of manifestation, you know, of, of living, it can get into our systems. And um, these things interfere with all kinds of functions and every kind of hormone. We always focus on what are called xenoestrogens. They're the endocrine disruptors that focus on estrogen because estrogen is the master hormone. Okay? Mm -hmm. But you can have endocrine disruptors for every hormone thyroid, you know, you name it, aldosterone, melatonin, testosterone. So basically you can have an endocrine disruptor for any and every 
and probably for what we might call the, the lesser, which are not really hormones, they sort of vary, and that's neurotransmitters. So you can't underestimate what chemicals can do. We already know that plants can naturally bind to our receptors. Well, we can create chemicals that can bind to our receptors and not help us, but mm-hmm. really harm us. Yeah. Um, wow, is all I can say. You know? <laughs> it is a little overwhelming, right? Yeah, it, it, it is. But, the, but again, you started with foundations. And one thing that I'm always impressed in, about is how, you know, the body wants to be healthy and how resilient we can be. Oh, so if we're a little bit off, you know, we need to do and be aware. And it's slowly over time where you get familiar with all this information. But if you start with basic things like eating real food, getting real (laughs) sleep, respecting your body for what it is and understanding the complexity of it. Um, Because, you know, um, it's simple, but not simple at all. You know, it sounds always so simple, right, to talk about it. But um, people get so entrenched in habits of lifestyle that changing people's behaviors mm-hmm. is one of the most challenging things that you can possibly do. And I think that's why I think education is really important. I think the old the old model of doctoring, where the patient just goes in and the doctor writes a prescription and says, take this. And you don't know why, you don't even know what it is. You just take it, like take this pill every day or whatever. And you don't even understand what the mechanism is in the body. I don't look at it that way. I work with my patients as a team. I view myself as a healthcare consultant. I am not their dictator. The old idea, and I still see this though, of doctors who view themselves as the patient's dictator. It's like, you're here of your own free will. I am not your dictator. I am not your boss. I am your healthcare consultant. I have spent a lifetime learning and exploring how the human female body, and now I do a little men too, because the wives (laughs) don't know where to take their husbands. And I'm they don't, they really don't know. And I don't know where to send them. And I'm double board certified in integrative medicine and OBGYN. So I can actually wear two hats, male or female. But, um, you know, I spent my lifetime trying to learn and master and continually master because new information is always coming out and not just learning random pieces of information, but consolidating it so that I can prioritize and I can really help people to take the right path. So, uh, so it's not just random things that you're going to do. We have a plan, you know, it's nice to have a cohesive plan and and, um, and, and people have to buy into it, I explain, and then they have to make their own choices. And it's my job. I'm also a lobbyist. I'm a lobbyist on behalf of health. So it's my job to lobby, to help persuade the patient that they care enough about themselves. I can't motivate them. I want to um, just make them come to terms with reality, you know, Uh you know, and just say, what do you want? Now make up your own mind. What are your goals? You know, and then I use examples and this is true life examples. Like what are, name some people in your family that ended up in nursing homes um, or have you ever taken a walk through a nursing home there? That's enough to make you anybody motivated. I'm telling you because (laughs) I've had family members in nursing homes and you know, you see, what happens sometimes in the last decade of life. And I've had patients say like, just, I don't want to live that way. Well, who, nobody does. The people in those situations don't, they never anticipated a decade, two, three earlier that they would live that way. 
So, you know, that's why I focus on for women who are, once they hit menopause, on healthy lifespan, right? So we call that health span. So it's not just living, it's living well, right? Mm -hmm. And for younger people, it's to optimize their fertility, even if they don't want to have a baby. Because fertility, in ancient civilizations understood this, fertility is a sign of health. It's a vital sign of health. Mm -hmm. They used to worship fertility gods. Unfortunately, we spend most of our job as doctors, not me, but, you know, trying to destroy fertility so that people don't have unwanted children. And we have to understand that people shouldn't have children that they don't want, but we can't do it by destroying fertility because fertility is part of the female well-being. You can't separate that off. If you poison fertility, you're poisoning the whole woman. It's a slow poison. It's a slow poison, but it's going to change her life in ways that she will never optimize her brain, her bones, her musculoskeletal system, her gut health. She's her immune system. She's going to have higher risk for everything bad. That's why we don't give birth control pills to women who just had a heart attack. If it's so good, why don't we do that? Or women who are heavy smoke or smokers, right? Mm-hmm. Or women who have uncontrolled hypertension. We don't give it to the most high-risk women, um, except that, uh, that getting to like my book in PCOS, SOS, most women with PCOS, actually the prime treatment is putting them on birth control pills. And they're a high-risk group that have metabolic, um, you know, poor health and it's like so crazy. And metformin now has been identified as a pharmaceutical that significantly alters the gut microbiome and is an endocrine disruptor. Why are we giving that to young women? And why would we give it to women when they're pregnant, which is what the standard of care is, even though the data... Really? Yes. And the data does not support that. It does. It it increases metabolic syndrome in the children, but the doctors won't let go of it. It drives me crazy. They don't know because they don't want to take the time to learn about like lifestyle medicine and functional medicine. So they have no tools. So they use the same tools even when the tools are harmful. It drives me crazy. That's why every woman has to really be her own best advocate and not take any doctor's word, even mine. I say to my patients, you know, if you don't understand something I'm saying or you disagree, I better be able to justify it. If I can't explain it or justify it, then you shouldn't do it, you know, because and no doctor should be giving something without knowing what the ramifications are, because these are huge things and they're changing Mm -hmm. lives. So that's why I had to write these books, because um, unfortunately, a lot of the doctors, I know they're well-meaning, but they're not giving the information to patients that they need to really, really regain their health and get where they should be. Let's talk about PCOS. Um, It is rampant. Everybody seems to have PCOS. It is. It's an epidemic. Um, And not my area of expertise at all, but maybe you can brief, <laughs> briefly, you wrote a whole book. Well, um, what is PCOS? And so, I do know that everybody's put on, I cringe, but I can only fight so many battles of the day. <laughs> um, right. What do you, um, well, besides the book, obviously. Well, I'll just give it in a nutshell. It turns out that women with PCOS have an underlying deficiency of estrogen 
Now, people don't realize that it's really estrogen deficiency state. That's why if you look at the metabolic complications, they look just like the same metabolic complications of, of uh, women in menopause. Because menopause women, of course, don't make estrogen. They have decreased amounts. They don't make it from their ovaries. Women with PCOS have two problems going on. One, their ovaries don't make enough estrogen because they have an underlying issue, which is very minor if everything else is right, that they don't change testosterone into estrogen as efficiently as other women. But they do it fine, fine enough. It's just that in like, if you go back to ancient days, okay? Mm -hmm. But now in the world that we live in, because of all the endocrine disruptors, especially exposure in utero, is that their estrogen receptors, and this has now been shown in studies, mm -hmm. do not work properly. So they make less estrogen and they, the estrogen they make doesn't work properly. So essentially, it's like estrogen deficiency state. Mm -hmm. So estrogen is the master of all metabolic processes mm -hmm. and maintains the gut microbiome, the brain, the, the vascular system, all these things. So if you go down the list, ding, 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 of all the different symptoms that women have with, with PCOS, it's really manifestation of estrogen deficiency. And of course, endocrine disruptor overload. And they've actually done studies that show that women with PCOS have more BPA in their bodies than the average woman. So they, many of them may have some deficiencies in their ability to detoxify and excrete some of these endocrine disruptors. So they bioaccumulate them more. So it's like the perfect storm that just gets together to create metabolic chaos. That's why women with PCOS, it's a perfect example of how the linkage between reproductive function and metabolic function, and when there's, things are wrong, it's wrong across the board. Reproductive dysfunctions, infertility, high rates of miscarriage, pregnancy complications, irregular cycles, and then metabolic problems, insulin resistance, hypertension, cardiometabolic problems, and then they have all the other ramifications. They have more arthritis, more depression, more anxiety, um, irritable bowel syndrome, more autoimmune diseases, particularly Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, and also even higher rates of lupus, higher rates of endometriosis and fibroids, which are also linked to inflammation. So women with PCOS have more inflammation. They have abnormal gut microbiomes. And now there are papers written that they have dysregulation of their endocannabinoid system. It's all one body. And, and now we can see that everything I talked about actually is found perfectly or imperfectly as you look at it in the body of a woman with PCOS. It's the it's the exact example of how you all these systems interrelate and when they are not working properly because you don't have enough proper estrogen, you have too much endocrine disruptors in the body, how you just have a disarray of all metabolic and reproductive functions. So what I go through explaining mm -hmm. all of this and then I go through, I have a seven-step program that every woman with PCOS can implement on her own. I want every woman to have a doctor, but these are safe things that, you know, in, and hopefully in conjunction with a medical doctor, if she can find one that will work with her. And hopefully every city has a few that are open-minded to lifestyle medicine because it's all about lifestyle medicine. It's about um, eating to the beat, seeing the light, getting the sleep, working with stress, reducing okay. endocrine disruptors, all these things. So I have a perfectly organized seven-step program. And then 
starting um, in January, it will be out on Amazon. And then it's actually available right now on as, an, as a, a Kindle version. I have my newest book, which is coming out, which is the PCOS SOS Fertility Fast Track, the 12-week plan to optimize your chances of a successful pregnancy and a healthy baby. Because so many women with PCOS are having so much trouble getting pregnant and they're so distressed over it. Even in, in the vast majority of cases, this will get a woman in just 12 weeks back to ovulating and becoming fertile and lower her chances of all the myriad pregnancy complications. Um, and in case if it doesn't, because they're always outliers, nothing is 100%, they could repeat it for another, another 12 weeks. And even if they do end up going to IVF, women in general who have PCOS who do IVF have very low success rates. It's like the worst. And it's really bad. The success rate is really low. So even if they do end up going to IVF, by following my program, their chances of having successful IVF will be significantly increased and having less complications. Can you imagine getting pregnant, going through IVF, and then miscarrying or having serious pregnancy complications? We do everything to get everyone not just pregnant, but then an uncomplicated pregnancy and a healthy baby that is metabolically healthy to have a good life. So, um, so that's so the first of my said, fast track. As you said earlier, with the fertility is not just, I mean, for a lot of women, it's obviously about having babies, but it's about being healthy. Absolutely. Um, and if you're and fertile, you're health, your body's healthy with, in every way, not just in having children. Absolutely. And that's why my books can actually be used with almost no changes whatsoever by any woman, even men, because it's really about understanding the beautiful link between hormonal function, hormonal balance, the metabolic state with a proper endocannabinoid system, circadian rhythm, gut microbiome, and then bringing it all together to to help a person to optimize their health, to have the life that they want. So it's really foundational lifestyle medicine, really. And I focus on PCOS, but you know, it's, let's be real. A good diet for someone with PCOS is still a good diet for someone without PCOS. Right? Exactly. So it's, yeah. it's really foundational. I mean, I could actually change the title and make almost no changes, and then I could call it menopause SOS. Maybe I'll do that. You know, because honestly, <laughs> it's really the same foundational types of lifestyle changes that will enable, and even a lot of the supplements would be exactly the mm -hmm. same ones that you could use if you were menopausal. So yeah, no, really but I think same. But I mean, that's so important and people need to understand how foundational health is and, you know, the, um, the rhythms of the body and respecting it and respecting right. nature. It really, really is. And that's, um, that's where I'd like to start with people for if they just come in just with anxiety and depression. Sometimes we have to help them calm that symptom so they can do the foundational thing. Mm -hmm. right. But a lot of times their anxiety and depression goes away by some foundational treatment. It's, it's amazing. It's it amazing. is. It's that's what I love to emphasize is that the human body developed to be incredibly resilient and self-healing. We help it along and it will do the job that it's designed to do. Thank you so much. I um, usually ask people if they 
um, have a like a take home message like we used to get in med school What the take home message from this lecture is if people could remember one thing as they're um, finishing up this obviously I would love them to to listen over and over to this because you have so much information packed in. What would you kind of say? Um, I know that's kind of a tough question too. So I would say there's a lot to be done. So the most important thing is to just decide. Decide that now is the time you're really going to focus on yourself because you matter. Your life matters. You are one unique you know, snowflake in the crowd. I know you're getting a snowstorm probably soon. Yeah. <laughs> you're, 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 you're the only one of you. Mm-hmm. You deserve to have the life you deserve. You deserve to live a happy, healthy life. So please do the things that you know you need to do, even though they're hard, even though they're changed, so that you can have the happiest, healthiest life possible. Just value yourself and, and make the decision that there's no time to delay. Just do yeah. it. You know, like, I don't want to sound like a commercial, you know. No, just no. Decide I, you are, just decide that you matter enough to actually make the changes and don't let anyone deter you. Sometimes people live in homes where people, you know, are like, well, you don't need that. Let's go out for pizza and beer, you know. No, mm-hmm. don't let anyone get in your way. You're going to succeed. And every day, just know you wake up in the morning, Today is a good day. Dr. Gersh, thank you so much. It was such an informative time. I know there's so many nuggets in here, and I really, really am so happy you've done the PCOS book. Um, I think it's much overneeded, and the new one with the fertility. I really, really appreciate it. My pleasure.